first thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on the phone? No. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Teg Nataro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Today, Today Explained. Today Explained. Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm taking a break today, but not too much of one, and I wanted to bring you two episodes of Today Explained. Rather than tell you why you should listen to Today Explained, which is our, our daily news podcast hosted by Sean Romstrom, I want to tell you why I do. The news is unbelievably overwhelming, and just sitting there refreshing, doing it on Twitter, it can drive you a little bit crazy, and I say that as somebody producing some of that news. And Today Explained is I find a calmer, clearer way, particularly when I'm trying to take a bit of a break from daily updating, to follow. You get this great coronavirus update at the top, and then they've just been doing an extraordinary job slowing the issues down and either looking directly at something that is core to the crisis or, and I think this is such important work, finding what I would call coronavirus-adjacent stories, the things in our society that are maybe not the main story here, not being treated as a main story, but this is shining a light on something we really need to pay attention to. And so those stories in particular are helping me understand not just this crisis better, but the world we live in, the world we lived in, and the world we will return to hopefully one day better. So I wanted to bring you two episodes that I particularly got a lot out of this week. One of them I'm in, so maybe this is a humble bragging or something, but it's about the loneliness pandemic and the way coronavirus is worsening a crisis of social isolation and lonesomeness that was already existent in our communities and particularly for our most vulnerable who are going to be in much more severe trouble now for some time. But the other one, which I actually feel more strongly about is about essential workers. We now have these classes in many states of who we call essential. And look who it is. It is people who work in grocery stores, in gas stations, people who are healthcare workers, nurses. And yet those essential workers, essential workers, are the people we treated before this crisis as inessential, and they're people we are treating now as disposable. They are often not paid well. They are not protected. They are taking risk on behalf of all of us, risk they often have to take to keep their jobs, to keep their families from being economically deprived. These aren't people who want to be heroes in many cases. They're just people who have to get up in the morning and go to a job. And while many of us are staying home, they don't get to. And they are getting coughed on and they know they are at risk and their employers are not protecting them, and society is not protecting them. We call them essential. We call them, in many cases now, if you listen to politicians, heroes, and we treat them as disposable, and it is a national shame. That particular episode of Today Explained, I just feel so strongly about, and I hope you listen to it, and I hope you advocate for folks. 
and I hope it causes some change. So I'm going to start here with the loneliness pandemic and go then to the essential workers episode. If you like what you hear, and I think you will, subscribe to Today Explained wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, uh, my name is Sean. I'm calling from New York City. I am a relatively healthy 27-year-old, and I'm maybe the most anxious I've ever been in my entire life. And I just, I don't, I don't know what to do about that. And I get that the response needs to be uh, mitigating, like, actual real health impacts for the most vulnerable sections of the population. I get that. I really do. But the, what can the rest of us do to just to feel okay? I don't know. Has anyone thought about the kind of psychological impact that this crisis is having on the population? Thanks so much. Thanks for calling, Sean. The answer to your question is yes. Your boy, Ezra Klein, has been thinking about the psychological impact of this crisis. He wrote a whole dang piece about it for Vox.com. I think in politics, we're very used to looking at the economic impacts of things. What is it going to do to GDP? What is it going to do to the unemployment rate? But what coronavirus is doing is disrupting something more foundational and fundamental even than that. It is disrupting whether or not we are able to see each other to give each other a hug, to go visit a parent. And there's been a revolution in recent years in the medical science around social isolation and loneliness, which are different things, notably. Social isolation is uh, objective, measurable. How many people do you see in a week? Loneliness is subjective. Uh, it is whether or not you feel lonely. But both of them have mental effects on people, and they really do physical harm. They are, they are a genuine health risk. So understanding that and then trying to abate it, recognizing that we have to do more than just physically distance, we also need to socially connect, particularly for the most vulnerable. I wanted to write this piece because I think it's unbelievably important. Are there numbers on social isolation? Are they as bad as these jobs numbers we're seeing? We don't do it in a national way, moment to moment, the way we do for the economy. It isn't that there are daily unemployment filings for loneliness. Yeah. But we do have surveys and we do have a lot of, of, of data on this. Um, by coincidence, just a couple months ago, the National Academies of Science released a huge report on the health consequences of social isolation and loneliness in older adults. As you might expect, older adults are among the most vulnerable to this. So 43% said they felt lonely and about a quarter fit the definition of socially isolated. And this is pre-coronavirus or is this, this... is pre-coronavirus. Yeah. And remember, you may be a millennial or a Gen Z or whatever who's socially distancing right now, but if you're over 70, you're doing something in most parts of the country if you're paying attention that is much more severe. You're quarantining. You are terrified of catching this, not because you might give it to somebody else, which is bad enough, but because you may not survive it. So a lot of people who are already quite lonely, quite isolated, have moved into a period of self-imposed quarantine that does not have a clear endpoint. And the more that young people go out, the more that their children or their friends are out in the world and potentially able to catch this virus, the more they have to segregate away from them. So it's really, really difficult. And loneliness and isolation, particularly among the elderly, is a tremendous health risk. It seems to be physical in some deep way. And the, the particular way in which it's physical, the former Surgeon General Vivek Murthy has done a lot of work on this. He's got a book coming out on it, is that it 
sets off a tremendous stress response in the body. Human beings know on a deep level, deeper than our conscious thought, to feel safe in a group. If we are not in a group, we wake up more often during the night. We are more afraid. We are what's called hypervigilant. We're constantly scanning for threats. We don't relax. And this seems to then set off a, a chain reaction of very dangerous actual physical reactions in the body. So in this National Academy of Sciences report, what they find is Social isolation, and I'm quoting here, has been associated with a significantly increased risk of premature mortality from all causes. And those causes include a 50% increased risk of developing dementia, a 29% increased risk of incidence of coronary heart disease, a 25% increased risk of cancer mortality, a 59% increased risk of functional decline, and a 32% increased risk of stroke. Now, that is over time. It's not necessarily over two or three weeks of being lonely, but if this goes on for a long time, it is worth being clear. Being lonely and being isolated is a health risk, a direct physical risk to your life. I'm sure there are some people who are fine being alone. I know a few people who seem happier in quarantine than they were going to work every day, but what about people who already suffer from serious anxiety or depression, people who are already desperately lonely? This is a, a huge issue, I think. So the way I would think about this is that the people who are already at the highest risk for social isolation and loneliness are even more vulnerable in this era. So we've been talking about the elderly, but the disabled are another group here. A lot of people who it's already hard for them to go out, already hard for them to go take a walk, already hard for them to see people for one reason or another. And then people with serious mental health issues who are socially anxious, who are depressed, this is going to make it much harder both for them to go out, but also harder for people to reach out to them. They may have an extreme reaction where they have trouble even taking incoming help, even if people are trying to be safe about it. And I want to be so clear, we need to do the social distancing. We absolutely need to. But we also have to remember that the cost of social distancing will fall disproportionately on those who are already most vulnerable and already were the most lonely and isolated. And that will have not just psychological, but also health effects for them. I'm doing okay so far. My hair is a wreck because I had, I figured I'm not going anywhere, so I didn't bother curling it or anything. My name is Dorothy Kelly. I'm 84 years old. I live alone in the, I'm pretty much in isolation. It's really hard to just be stuck in the house all the time. I like to be with people, so <laughs> I miss that. And um, I see my daughter on Saturdays from a distance. She brings me groceries and leaves them in the garage and tells me not to come past the kitchen door. And the same with my daughter-in-law, who she leaves stuff on her front porch. I'm doing Duolingo on my iPad in Italian, mostly to keep my brain active, and then reading a mystery book. And uh, then I keep cleaning out some drawers, because I am 84, and I've got so much stuff accumulated, you can't imagine. Then that's basically it, and watching movies that I've recorded in the evening, or TV shows. I like uh, Jeopardy and uh, Wheel of Fortune, so I record them, <laughs> I didn't even know what FaceTime was till last week when the, the phone started making noises and I answered it. It was my son doing FaceTime. So I said, how do you do that? So he explained it to me. So luckily for cell phones and text messages and stuff like that, 
and FaceTime with my family, so that's good. But I'm looking out my window right now, and the trees are starting to bloom all over the place. And the birds in the morning are, I guess they don't know there's such a thing as a coronavirus, and they're all singing and building their nests in the trees around my house. It's so funny to hear them singing and being happy. I miss uh, being able to hug my grandson, who's nine years old. I have five grandchildren, but he's the youngest. And um, I just miss the closeness, you know, uh, being able to hug somebody and have somebody hug me, and which I always did with my family. We're huggers, so I miss that, yeah. My advice to other people that are in my position is to keep busy with your mind, do something, watch something pleasant, read a book that's interesting, and um, try to stay positive is the main thing. And I think, you know, someone in my position has to think like that, has to be positive. Otherwise, they may as well just, you know, curl up and die <laughs> because it's a, people have died from depression, you know, just being sad. So you just got to keep thinking positively that this will end, hopefully. I just hope it all does end. Yep. Did you know the Tribeca Festival premieres more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts and live tapings of popular podcasts you know and love. Attend Slow Burn, the hit narrative podcast exploring the Briggs Initiative. Experience an exclusive live taping of Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy as they investigate complex stories of people who've done wrong or been wronged. Or get a vibe check on today's politics, entertainment, and news with a live taping of Vibe Check with Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Ezra, we heard from Dorothy, who's learning Italian on Duolingo and getting the hang of FaceTime, keeping her mind busy. Is this on us to figure out for ourselves, or is there something like, I don't know, the government could do to help, or what? To be fair, it is a hard thing for the government to do anything about. This isn't one where you can easily imagine a policy that will solve it. We are right now in a tension between our public health policy of social distancing and trying to keep the economy going. One of the ways I've been trying to think about it, and I saw this going around on Twitter, is I wish we had messaged this as physical distance and social connection. We need to be more physically distant from each other, but at the same time, we need to be doing more, not less, to reach out. We need to be calling the people in our lives who are vulnerable. We need to be setting up ways to call the people who don't have people in their lives to call them. Um, as some doctors mentioned to me when I was working on this piece, by definition, the people who are most at risk are the people who are not going to have a social network that activates in this moment. They are the ones who don't have kids who are going to make sure to call them every day or twice a day. I've really upped the amount I'm FaceTiming my son in with his grandparents, my parents. But a lot of people don't have that. So what are we doing for them? That is something where... I guess in theory, the public sector, but also civil society could activate, right? That's a good app people could work on. 
And by the way, that's another thing that there's going to be a digital divide among seniors here. I was talking to some seniors who are having real loneliness and isolation issues um, already from coronavirus. But the seniors I'm talking to are the ones who are able to get in touch with Vox, right? And they were saying that a great thing for them is they learned in recent years or at some point in the past how to use computers, how to connect digitally, how to use Skype. But older Americans are the ones who are least likely to be heavily online. And so for a lot of folks who haven't built a comfort and a confidence or even haven't bought the hardware that lets you have these kinds of digital connections, a lot of the ways the rest of us are trying to manage this era of social uh, distancing are not there for them. They can't easily join a Zoom with all of their friends because they don't know how. So even just helping older people in your life set up and become comfortable with the digital solutions here that are a partial replacement for in-person connection, that can be really useful. But beyond all the Zooms and the FaceTimes and the house party apps or whatever, at issue here, especially with the elderly, is that they may not have a social network to begin with, right? You're saying we need a totally new solution or app or something that could connect people who are free and willing to talk with those who are desperate for connection, right? Like, I don't know, maybe like a chat roulette, but without all the perviness? (laughs) That, that's a good, I like chat roulette without... Yeah, like the, chat roulette, but for helping older people combat loneliness. Does that app exist or do we need to make that app? I think that is a good app idea if anybody's out there and wants to make it. And and hopefully somebody is. But I, I want to say that one of the ways coronavirus is an unbelievable asshole of a disease <laughs> is it in addition to the direct death and uh, sickness that it is causing... It is causing tremendous economic and social disruption. It is rending the very fabric of our lives. And something that I'm trying to add to the list of just what we are thinking about is the possibility if some of the more grim cases are correct and we are social distancing in in pretty significant ways, let's say through the end of the year, what are we going to do to connect people? But you and I spoke earlier about how you've been FaceTiming more with your parents so they can see your son, their grandchild, and Like, I got to say, as a pathological keeper in touch, I've been pleasantly surprised to see friends who've never called me or FaceTimed me calling and FaceTiming now. And I just used that house party app last week for the first time, and it was utter and total chaos. But I appreciated that a buddy organized it. I don't know if we have any, like, actual data yet, but is there a chance that this, you know, cross-continental quarantine changes the way we communicate with our loved ones? I mean fewer memes and links and photos and maybe deeper conversation about how we're really doing and how we're feeling? I do think so. And I also think it's going to go in all different directions for people at all different times. So I want to know two things that are a little subtle here. I spent some time with Vivek Murthy. We did a great episode on on my podcast actually about loneliness. And something that is in his book and in, in other work is this idea that when people are lonely, They are touchier. They experience more things as a slight, right? They weren't called. They're going to be scared. They're going to be anxious. They're going to be angry, right? They're going to need somebody to talk to. They'll be freaking out about something. And then you call, and now they're ranting at you, and you just called to have a nice conversation. And then on the other hand, there are going to be people, and I've definitely felt this myself. I'm in a house with – I'm here with my wife and my wonderful but totally nuts one-year-old son and two dogs who are cooped up and not getting enough exercise. And I'm not always the best version of myself either. 
And so as much as I want to be out there connecting and, and trying to be a good Samaritan on all this, sometimes I'll call somebody and I don't get the reaction I'm hoping for, and I don't have some of the emotional bandwidth to deal with it. And so I'm finding it really important to be mindful that good intentions aren't enough. You also have just have to recognize this is going to be hard for everybody, and we're going to have to be really generous with each other and try to find the times when there's space. You need to create space to do this kind of reaching out actually setting aside an hour a day so you can like take 10 deep breaths first and then be in a good place to talk to people is difficult. But in the same way as everything else in this crisis, if we have the bandwidth for it, it's something that we we have to do in a pro-social way. It's a way we can come together and show solidarity. We don't just need social distancing in a very deep way. We need a commitment to solidarity, to social solidarity. Ezra, thank you so much. Maybe we can have you back to talk about this once someone makes chat roulette without the perviness. Once they do that, I'm not going to come back because I'm going to be on chat roulette so much, having (laughs) great socially connecting conversations. Ditto. Ezra Klein's aforementioned podcast is The Ezra Klein Show. I'm Sean Ramos for him. This is Today Explained. The team is working remotely in Maryland, Virginia, and Washington, D.C., but we still make time to check in every morning via Zoom. Afim Shapiro has big hair. Amna Al-Sadi has noisy neighbors. Jillian Weinberger has a spare room. Bridget McCarthy has a Dan Charles. Noam Hassenfeld is always wearing headphones. And Halima Shah is clearly a cat person. Liz Nelson joins us once a week. And Desmond joins her about once a month so far, but he's always welcome. Cecilia Lay is checking our facts from San Francisco. The mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder makes music from outer space, I'm guessing. We had extra help this week from Paul Mounsey. John Delore did us a few solids, too. And Today Explained is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. That was the loneliness pandemic. Now I want to move to the next episode here, which is very, very aptly titled, All Praise, No Pay. This coronavirus pandemic has changed who we call heroes. It's not just doctors and nurses and EMT workers anymore. Now, it's our delivery people, our food service employees, our public transit workers. These people who have always been essential are finally being recognized as such. Liz Warren has a plan for them. Vice President Pence is hailing their service to the country. Tom Hanks is shouting them out on Saturday Night Live. But a lot of them are suffering now more than ever. Take Terrence Wise. He's a manager at a McDonald's in Kansas City, Missouri, and has been advocating for fast food workers since well before this crisis with Fight for 15. It's an effort to raise the minimum wage and unionize fast food restaurants. You know, before the coronavirus pandemic, me and my fiance, who's a full-time home health care worker, well, me, my fiance, and my three little girls, we were homeless. You know, it was us five living in the basement of my sister-in-law's house, and she's got six in our household. So, you know, we had 11 in a three-bedroom, one-bath house. 
So, you know, we're supposed to practice social distancing and all of that. But we had 11 people under one roof. And, you know, right after that, you know, the school started closing, not only here in Kansas City, but across the country. So it's been a struggle, you know, with child care for the girls. And now you got to feed them three times a day because schools close. And then, uh, you know, going into the workplace since the coronavirus pandemic, I think the number one thing, and it's been impacting not only fast food workers, but everyone has been the mental aspect of it, you know, being afraid and on edge. I've been, you know, a full-time worker my whole life. I'm 40 years old. We've never seen anything like this. So to just go to work with the the fear of going to work and, and something going wrong is one thing. And I'm normally a full-time worker, you know, a manager, 40 hours a week. And for the past three weeks, I've been only getting 28 hours a week. You know, so not only have I been impacted mentally, but uh, the financial challenges today and coming forward going into the future, it, it's going to be some trying times, you know. Did you have benefits when you were at 40 hours? No benefits, no health care, no dental, no paid sick leave, vacation time, no benefits whatsoever, even though I'm a full-time worker and a manager, you know. So... The difference between going from 40 to 28 is mostly that you're just making X amount less money. It's been like that across the board, not only in my shop, but across the board. Like, I'm down to 28 hours a week. Some workers have been taken off the schedule altogether. And is that because business is slowing down? We normally do about $9,000 a day at my shop. And recently, we are seeing about 7500 a day. So sales are down about 20%. And when I try to explain to folks, yes, sales are down, but we have a labor target at McDonald's as well. We're supposed to do 21% labor every day, which is 21% of the sales. And for the past three weeks, we've been doing 17, 18%. We have fewer workers on the schedule. We're supposed to practice social distancing. So we have five workers on each shift at all time, but it's still impossible to practice social distancing in the McDonald's environment, you know, keep six feet from each other and customers. So that plan's not been working. But with fewer workers, even though the sales have been lower, we've still been busy. And uh, what it actually means is running 17 and 18 percent labor is we should have two to three more workers to handle the traffic that we we have coming through. So even though uh, our hours are down, sales are down, we're still making profit. And the few workers that we have, it's really weighing on them because they're working harder now. Tell me what, if anything, McDonald's is doing to keep you guys safe right now. You know, their response is just to simplify. It's been weak. You know, we've been uh, organizing not only here in Kansas City, but across the country to fight and win protections that we should already have. We've been fighting for protective equipment, masks and gloves that have been non-existent, sneeze guards, you know. We've been fighting for hazard pay of at least $3. We've been fighting for um, the ability to get paid sick leave if we get sick. You know, recently I've been sick, tried to call in to work, and was pressured by my manager to come to work. So we've been fighting for all these protections, and uh, McDonald's has, you know, been lacking in their response. We were on a call just last week with uh, shareholders and analysts, you know, with McDonald's, and uh, Fight for 15 workers across the country, some in California, were on the call as well. 
And, you know, we laid our uh, demands out for the hazard pay for protective equipment and uh, the paid sick leave if one were sick, the ability to get tested. And uh, the day after we aired out these uh, grievances, I came to work and we had masks for the first time. This was like two days ago. Hey. So, you know, that we, we saw that as a victory. And, uh, and then I looked at the other side like, that's, that's not right. We have to fight and demand the ability to be protected. Has anyone around you, your colleagues, your coworkers, family members gotten sick? A coworker of mine's in a group session like therapy where she meets with a group of folks weekly and she attended the session and they alerted her and let her know that, you know, you were in contact with someone who has COVID-19. And she had worked a shift after this exposure. I worked with her. I actually took her home that night when we got off. And uh, she, of course, the next day let the job know. She called McDonald's and told them and they told her that she needs to stay away from work for 14 days. They didn't offer her to get tested. They didn't offer me to get tested. They didn't do a thorough cleaning of our store, any of that. They just told her to stay away for 14 days and she can come back. And uh, she has an apartment. She has a life. So that's 14 days of no work where she won't be paid. And I can tell you for... Few days after that, not only was I on edge, I know everyone in the shop was, you know, we were around someone who was exposed and uh, we had no idea what the what the outcome of that situation would be. If you had to give McDonald's a grade like between one and 10 on how they're protecting you and making you feel safe right now, what would you give them? I would give them a zero. Damn. We would have to go below the scale. You know, being a part of the fight for 15 and a union movement, you know, the the need for paid sick leave and protections, it's really been highlighted by the coronavirus pandemic. But we've been fighting for these protections for seven years now. And McDonald's, uh, you know, this is not a mom and pop shop. This is a global brand, a billion dollar corporation. And they have a, a greater responsibility, not only to the customers we serve, but to their workers and uh, their response and whole has been weak. Now, we know they, they've uh, announced that they're going to give 5% of their stores two weeks of paid sick leave if you test positive for the coronavirus, and then that's verified. Now, they're not offering the test. you got to go get it done. you got to be tested, then test positive to get two weeks of paid leave. And it's only for 5% of their corporate stores. And not only that, they've been busy in Congress lobbying against worker protections. So McDonald's has been busy doing all the wrong things. And uh, their response to ensuring that the workers are safe and the public is safe has been lacking. You know, it's funny to think of McDonald's as, as unable to fulfill the needs of its workers because it is such a huge corporation. But obviously the government is stepping up and stepping in here to protect American workers. Everyone's getting a check in the mail. Do you feel like where McDonald's is slipping, the government has your back? No. And, and when you think about it, the, uh, you know, the proposed stimulus package and, and every little bit helps. Let's, let's be clear. Workers need every bit that they can get. But when you're talking about a, a $1,000 stimulus check, let's just say that my mortgage before I was homeless was $1,200 a month. That's not counting food, gas in the cars to get to work, basic necessities. So you talk about a stimulus package of a thousand. That's like putting a Band-Aid on a gash. What does my life look like and workers' lives look like one month from now? Two, 
three months down the road. So we're going to need a lot more than just a, a one-time Band-Aid, you know, to help fix not only uh, what's going on in workers' lives, but to help them. And uh, McDonald's, you know, in general, doesn't have to wait on legislation, you know, the government to subsidize their workers with food stamps or assistance. They can make changes now. But uh, not enough is being done by corporations or our elected leaders to make life easier for what we call essential workers. You hear me? Sure. I mean, you see these sort of one-off labor actions being organized in different places across the country. Fast food workers in California, Amazon staff in New York. I know you're no stranger to labor action yourself. Do you think there's a chance here for essential workers like you across the country to do something big? We know in the... Uh Labor movement, it's not about uh, how big it can get. It's got to get bigger because we know folks with power don't give it up willingly. And we know as workers that uh, when you look back, even at the history of our country, not only do we have the bloodiest labor history out of any country on the globe, but when you look back at our history of our country, nothing has been won or gained in this country without mass movement and organization. When you talk about women's rights, civil rights, the ability to vote, all of those things were won through a movement, you know, of working class folks coming together and taking action. And going on strike is one of the most important tools in our toolbox. Someone died to give me the right to be out here today to stand up and fight. So we, we got a, uh, you know, a cloth that we're cut from as the working class. And uh, we're happy to live up to that tradition. And we look forward to escalating that as well. Terrence Wise manages a McDonald's in Kansas City, Missouri, where he says he's gone on strike a dozen times and he might soon make it a baker's. We reached out to McDonald's to ask about Terrence's zero rating on a scale of one to ten. A spokesperson wrote back, overall, this feedback does not represent the feedback we are hearing from the majority of employees across the country and that McDonald's is implementing wellness checks, providing masks where they're needed most and adding protective barriers, among other measures, they said they have the health and well-being of restaurant employees top of mind. More in a minute on Today Explained. All right, we're back. We left off with Terrence saying he's looking forward to an escalation of the strikes we're seeing in places like California and New York. With workers across industries demanding better pay and protections, I asked Professor Jamila Michner if there's a chance labor groups could get together and organize for better conditions across industries. She's a professor at Cornell who focuses on how policy affects low-income people. Well, I think if there's potential, it's here now because the depth of grievances And the fact that people are literally putting their lives at risk to provide essential services creates a kind of context that we couldn't have imagined or predicted, but is also a bit of a tinderbox that is a kind of ripe context for people to respond in maybe ways we wouldn't have expected and that are unprecedented. And there's a name for this type of labor action, right? It's a general strike. What exactly is that? 
So a general strike is a strike that's not limited to a specific trade or occupation or employer. So it's not like GM workers striking or McDonald's workers striking. It's really when the strike transcends those individual companies or individual occupations and its workers on a broader level uniting to fight for a kind of similar set of demands. And when was the last time the United States saw something like that? Oh, you know, I don't know that there's complete agreement on that. Um, But, you know, (laughs) there was a general strike in Oakland in 1946. We might think about that as the last time, but not many people know about it. I think that the kind of seminal example of this that really looms largest in everyone's mind historically is the Seattle general strike of 1919. It was the kind of first general strike of the 20th century and the biggest and, I think, most impactful one. Pretty much a century ago. Interestingly, it's like the last time we had a wide-scale global pandemic was, was, I think, 1918 with the Spanish flu, right? Exactly. So this was in the wake of that and also, you know, following the end of the First World War. And so people had been sacrificing during the war. They had been dealing with frozen wages and been told that they were doing that for the sake of the country and for the sake of democracy and things like that. And, and then when the war ended, the wages stayed frozen. And so after years of sacrifice and after suffering through a pandemic, people had had enough. And we saw a kind of massive strike and it was across industries. It started with the shipyard workers, but it went beyond them. And workers all over the city of Seattle coordinated and shut down the city for for six entire days. So it was pretty unprecedented. And we haven't seen anything of that scale since then, honestly. Did workers get what they were asking for? Did they get better wages? Did they get better benefits, treatment? They did not. So in a concrete sense, uh, the strike was not successful. There was a lot of pushback. This was also, you know, just a few years after the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia. So everyone was super afraid of communism. And this was viewed as kind of a potential harbinger of communism. And so there was a lot of pushback. And the officials who were in charge with negotiating, in particular with the shipyard workers who had begun the strike, they didn't capitulate and they didn't provide wage increases or do many of the different things that the workers were asking for. So by concrete metrics, this was a failure. But I think by a broader metric, which was the long-term impact that it had, it was very much a success. There were strikes that followed on this, pretty major strikes in San Francisco in 1934. San Francisco's ever-smoldering labor war breaks out anew with uniformed union members parading in protest against their employers. This strike stands as kind of an example of possibilities in the U.S. We are asking for a general strike to keep organized labor on the Pacific Coast. We are not only asking for it, but we're going to get it. So it's had a long-term effect in terms of how it's shaped the labor movement and the possibilities for labor in the United States, but it didn't result in concrete gains for the people who who actually participated in the strike. Hmm. So they just ended up going back to work? They did. And then some of the kind of the salient people who were involved at that time were actually arrested and they were charged with, you know, being communist and things like that. But I think that this shows that that was a political context where the risk was huge 
And people still did this, right? They still took that step. So it tells us a lot about the possibilities, I think. And what about the risk and possibilities now, you know, 100 years later? You've got Vice President Pence praising food workers and calling them vital and saying they need to step up and feed America. Meanwhile, people like Terrence are saying they want to strike to demand better conditions during this pandemic, but it's kind of hard to strike when you're not supposed to go outside or near other people. I do think it makes it hard. You know, something that happened in the 1919 strike was a a really sophisticated and high level of coordination. People worked together. They made sure that basic needs were still met during the strike. And that just required, to a certain extent, being around each other. And we can't do that right now. At the same time, A lot of the workers that we're talking about are workers whose jobs were mediated through technology anyway. So they're used to engaging the world in ways other than being physically proximate or physically close to someone. So while I think that the pandemic makes it hard in the sense of physical distance, there are possibilities that remain regardless of that. I think a higher bar as far as difficulty is just how difficult it is to look beyond your own material needs right now, your health, your wellness, that of your families, food on the table, rent being paid. Um, And when people are thinking about those needs, it's harder for them to kind of coordinate and work with others and organize. At the same time, those very needs can be a motivation to do more than you may have done before because you're desperate. Sometimes in our lives, we all have pain. You know, I saw this Walmart commercial this weekend with Bill Withers' Lean on Me playing, and and the message is like, salute your Walmart heroes. And I was like, is Walmart saluting its Walmart heroes right now? Are they, are they giving people, how much did they pay to license Bill Withers' Lean on Me? Could they have distributed that money to their workers and given them some, some, some solace, some financial safety net in this moment? I mean... It seems like workers have America's attention right now. Is there something they can do? If, if a general strike is out of reach, what can they do instead? What workers can do is really build on that. Maybe not in terms of a general strike, but in terms of the kind of level of connection and organizing that's happening among themselves. You know, my nephew works at an Amazon warehouse in Queens, actually, because a few people there... Um, you know, came down with the virus and there was lots going on. And when I talk to him about these things, he's super aware of the strikes and of the discussion around striking. And And he's not someone who's very political and who thinks about these things outside of this context and in normal life. So the fact that workers are recognizing, not just that the public is recognizing their importance, but that they're recognizing their own importance, that they're recognizing that in order for uh, Americans to be able to live the lives that they want to live, they need people packing their Amazon boxes and delivering their food, and et cetera. That self-recognition of their importance, I think, is the first step towards continuing to build beyond this pandemic. So, you know, there's the question of, do we think a strike can happen right now during all of this? And I think that's that's a high calling and one that is probably not quite possible. But then there's another question of, do we think that some foundation can be laid now in terms of altering the way that workers see themselves and altering the way that the public sees workers so that 
a year from now or two years from now, after some work has been done, some organizing has happened, we might see something closer to a general strike. I think if we stretch the time horizon that way, then then there is much more that is possible. Is it too late, though? Is it too late in two years when people have maybe even forgotten how grateful they were to their grocery store workers back in that pandemic and in the spring of 2020? It may be. I mean, I wouldn't if there were if there's a real possibility now, I wouldn't say wait. Right. But if it doesn't look like things are going to move in that direction now, I I don't know that I would say that the moment will have passed two years from now. We're looking at a long road of economic struggle ahead of us. And that doesn't go away, even when the most intense part of this pandemic wanes. And I think people are going to continue to have deep needs. I think people are going to continue to recognize, you know, that they're not getting a lot from their employers, that they're very insecure economically, that their families are not cared for in the way that they should be, given how much work they're doing. And these issues are going to continue to like percolate and be a part of the public conversation. Whether or not it will be too late two years from now is going to depend on what happens between now and then. You know, the strike in Seattle didn't bubble up just out of nowhere. There were people on the ground working for years beforehand to make something like that possible, to connect different unions to each other, to connect workers to each other who previously didn't understand their fates as linked. I think if this moment can spark that kind of activity, then two years from now might exactly be when those things have built up to the point that the capacity is there to really organize people to push back. Jamila Michner is a professor in the government department over at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. She's got a book. It's called Fragmented Democracy, Medicaid, Federalism, and Unequal Politics. Maybe see if there's a way to find it at your local bookstore. And, you know, tell your essential workers how much you appreciate them. And, you know, maybe ask if they're accepting tips if you can afford it. In the immortal words of Kanye West, if you admire somebody, you should go ahead and tell them people never get the flowers while they can still smell them. I'm Sean Ramos for him. This is Today Explained. All right, that is the show for today. We will be back on Thursday with a whole new interview. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to Today Explained, as I do wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you, of course, to the Today Explained team for letting us use their episodes today, to Roger Karma for researching, Jeffrey Geld for producing the Ezra Klein Shows of Vox Media podcast production. 